welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I am joining you all from South Africa. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Allie Bernison. Hello, I'm Allie, and I am in sunny Los Angeles. <laughs> if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor Take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. So, you know, we've been in our current series for a couple months now on becoming the beloved community, restoration and healing in the midst of division. And this conversation, these conversations are, you know, rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. And this concept of becoming the beloved community is what's framing our conversations as we talk to people whom we call peace builders who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation, as well as, um, well, rather a part of that ministry being interrupting and challenging oppression and holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of the community. Yeah, it's been such an amazing series. So this week we are interviewing Jonathan and Sarah Nahar, who specialize in nonviolent action training. Sarah is currently a PhD candidate in Syracuse, New York, focusing on ecological regeneration, community cultivation, and spiritual activism. Sarah was a 2019 Rotary Peace Fellow and worked at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center in Atlanta, Georgia. She's been the executive director of Christian Peacemaker Teams, which is an organization doing third-party nonviolent intervention in areas of lethal conflict worldwide. Jonathan, her husband's also been um, a leader in Christian Peacemaker Teams, and he's been active in Palestinian liberation activism, countering Christian Zionism, and they are just power couple. So, so excited to get into this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before we, we dive in, all, we also wanted to share our peace quote of the week, um, which is another quote by Martin Luther King Jr. We are quoting him a lot in this series, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and this quote says, resistance and nonviolence are not in themselves good. There is another element that must be present in our struggle that then makes our resistance and nonviolence truly meaningful. That element is reconciliation. Our ultimate end must be the creation of the beloved community. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, just to get us started, can you introduce yourselves and where you're dialing in from and kind of where you find yourselves in passions, projects, career, how you would articulate that? Hello, this is Sarah Nahar. And I'm Jonathan Nahar. And we are dialing in today from Syracuse, New York, which is traditional unceded Onondaga Nation land. And they are the central fire of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is one of the original confederacies, a pre-U.S. colonization that is a participatory democracy and has been doing that for a thousand years. So we are students of our place here and I'm also currently doing a PhD in religion and environmental studies. And Sarah and I both uh, come from a tradition of Christian witness and nonviolent direct action, uh, working with uh, what was called Christian Peacemaker Teams, recently changed the name to Community Peacemaker Teams, uh, which works internationally with communities that invite them to come in uh, and support those that are building partnerships to transform violence and oppression through nonviolent direct action. Yeah, so our background, religious community-wise, is Mennonite, which, you know, a group of people seeking to separate church from state, from the sword, and to some extent from societal impacts of violence. And so that has really nurtured us as well as Jonathan comes from the tradition of Palestinian nonviolent resistance and faithful witness. And I also have an African-American like liberation 
theologian side as well. So we have a number of streams that influence our lifelong commitment to discipleship, which takes us into dangerous terrain, which is not just out there or overseas, but the dangerous terrain of how white supremacy, Christian Zionism, and the doctrine of discovery impact the very ways that we show up right now on this extraordinary and challenged and amazing planet. So we can get into any of that stuff that makes sense too from y'all's perspective and we're grateful to be here and we think that Peace Catalyst is a really important witness helping to in, in truly catalyze people's ability to take what they believe and put it into action. Thank you so much for sharing and it's really cool to hear that um, sort of where you're coming from and I also um, I served with EAPPI, if you know it. Um, yes. yeah. yeah, for a few months back in 2019. So a lot of love and respect for CPT. But yeah, so, you know, we're in the midst of our beloved community series. And, um, you know, we're asking our guests to kind of paint a picture of what the vision for the beloved community is in their minds. And, um, you know, kind of wanted to hear what your vision of beloved community is and how do these different sort of um, ways of, of being disciples and following Jesus and being witnesses um, in your context sort of, um, yeah, contribute to that vision. Where my mind goes first in, in answering that question, obviously this is a term coined by uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as he was articulating the goals of the uh, civil rights movement in the U.S., and I think about uh, as a Palestinian, the the goals of the Palestinian nonviolent resistant movement as well. Um, so I imagine a society or a community where all are held equal, where there is justice for all, uh, and where there is freedom. Uh, those seem like the bedrock of what we need to have the kind of community envisioned by Dr. King. Thanks, Jonathan. And what I think is really powerful about the beloved community vision and the way that Jonathan just spoke about it is that it is deeply systemic. Yes. It also relates to how we do community in our homes, in our civic groups and other places, but it can never forget that larger social change aspect is not only about feeling good or even comfortable, but about a society that works for everyone. And that is very difficult to achieve, but a, a worthwhile and not only worthwhile, but um, a call because the kingdom of God, and I say kingdom rather than kingdom, because I'm not just trying to replicate and heavenly hierarchy you know and in the model of an earthly one but kingdom in the in the tradition of Ada Maria Isai Diaz uh, a mujerista womanist Latin theologian Latina theologian who is thinking about our connections as kin to one another and extended family networks that that help to basically ensure the flourishing of all and people like Winona LaDuke and others who are leaders in indigenous um, sovereignty work remind us that our kin is not only human, but also with the more than human. And so when we talk about a beloved community that works for all, we're now not only just talking about human all, but to, you know, King had an ecological vision as well and thinking cosmically, thinking about uh, the more than human around us and how our lives are absolutely interconnected. And so the welfare of the planet is going to also have an impact on the welfare of society. And so the call for participating in the beloved community is maybe even to make us a little bit uncomfortable in this society that currently does not work for all and is having a huge impact negatively on the planet towards a lifelong journey of uprooting racism so we can plant racial justice, uprooting sexism so we can plant 
deep gender equality. So it's, it's, it's a long process of figuring out how to, you know, create community planetarily. And that, and that will involve many different aspects, but it does not just mean keeping around people who look like us, think like us and are really comfortable. Mm. Yeah. It's so good. I love what you're saying about like uprooting and then planting something new. That's so beautiful. Um, yeah. And it kind of speaks of like a cycle of, of new life and um, yeah. Planting things that, that we want to grow. That's beautiful. And I've really appreciated your particular, both of your particular um connection between beloved community and the the areas that you're committed to um and so kind of you know applying the concept of beloved community to your current um projects and studies and um work yeah i would be interested do you do you guys see intersection between what you're currently investing in and um, seeing this vision of beloved community kind of come to fruition or, or at least pursuing it, um, through what you're currently doing. Do you see any intersection or, cause you've kind of touched on how comprehensive the vision of beloved community really is. Um, so. Yeah. For me, I think that vision of beloved community is always, uh, kind of the goal that, that we are striving for. And when choosing what tactics we are going to use to gain uh, uh, successes as, as we're working towards that, it's, it's always important that the, the means and the ends are one, right? So this is a key idea in, in a lot of nonviolent direct action that uh, if we want a, our end goal to be a world that works for everyone, um, how do we put that into the practices that we're doing in, in, as we're trying to reach that? Um, so how do we hold even our enemies with love as we are working towards correction, as we are working towards uh, a better world for all? I'll pause there. Well, I'll just say in one way that you're, you're working on that is to not allow philanthropy to continue to do harm or people who think that they're doing charity to let them see the impacts of their actions and address the harm that they're doing and then put that choice in front of them. Do you want to continue or are you willing to see that your actions are harmful and to make a change? So speaking specifically about the defund racism yeah. campaign may be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a campaign that was, uh, started by Palestinians uh, living in the South Hebron Hills and other areas where uh, illegal Israeli settlers had moved onto their land and were trying to uh, force them off, uh, both violent, through physical violence as well as through using legal and state, the legal and state apparatus of, of the Israeli occupation to um, they would bring up lawsuits trying to get Palestinian homes demolished, for example, uh, and were able to do that successfully in the apartheid system. And it turned out that a lot of those Israeli settler organizations were being funded through 501c3 charities, are still being funded through 501c3 charities in the in the U.S., and particularly in the state of New York, where we now live. So uh, I'm part of a campaign trying to expose the folks that are doing this funding, as well as uh, mm-hmm. legally challenge their right because 501c3s, um, I mean, the whole idea of them is they're for the common good. And the idea of demolishing family homes and stealing land does not feel like it's part of the common good. Um, mm-hmm. And just w- one other thing for, for this particular audience is that uh, a lot of these organizations that are the hardest to actually find like the paper trail are Christian organizations. Um, Christian Zionist organizations tend to be some of the biggest funders. 
though they are protected uh, by some of the, because they are Christian organizations from doing the kind of reporting that would make it easier to recognize uh, that they mm -hmm. are some um, that they are doing some of these problematic practices. So use, using their special status to tear down the beloved community rather than create it, mm -hmm. mm. and exploit, exploiting the fact that uh, Christianity's special position within the U.S. and the history of dominant Christianity that is here, allowing for mm -hmm. like unchristlike behavior. I think, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. And I wonder if you could just unpack for us a little bit, like when you say Christian Zionism, what does that mean exactly? Uh, Christian Zionism is a political agenda based on various uh, Christian scriptures um, that supports the apartheid state of Israel um, with the idea that it is somehow connected to both biblical Israel and potentially connected to um, Jesus's return in the apocalypse. Uh, there's a lot of different kind of bad theology that goes into to that understanding, including some health and wealth uh, prosperity gospel concepts that that take uh, the scripture in Genesis that where God promises, I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you to, to Abraham to mean anyone who financially or who uh, politically supports the state of Israel will be financially, um, will have financial gain from God. Uh, and this is used to promote this idea that the state of Israel is kind of God's favorite and that Palestinians are God's enemy. Uh, and again, uh, I think any theology that has God picking favorites and any theology that has a group of people as the enemy of God is fundamentally racist and is a, in my opinion, heretical uh, theology. So that's my very, very brief uh, background on Christian Zionism. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I think, yeah, that's really important what you said about the theology of like, yeah, God doesn't choose favorites, that everybody is for, is loved by God as a part of God's desired community. Um, and I think, yeah, what you were saying earlier about sort of how these actions do work against the beloved community and actually kind of tear down the vision for beloved community is, is really important too. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah, that's super helpful. Yeah. And just kind of echoing some of what Becca's saying, like that part of pursuing the beloved community is not only, um, you know, pursuing the, the good, but, or like the, I don't know, the, uh, the attributes of the beloved community, but kind of, um, countering what's opposed to beloved community. Um, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I wonder, Sarah, what comes to mind for you um, with that? Do you, do you see yourself um, part of dis similar or, you know, in, in the same way as Jonathan kind of dismantling um, certain ideologies or, or structures? Or are you, yeah, where do you see your, um, yourself kind of in that? Yeah. If at all. So, yes, disruption of business as usual is a crucial factor in making space for the creation of what we hope to see. One simple kind of way to talk about the, the methodology around, around disruption and handling the rupture of business as usual, because business as usual, which is extractive and petrochemical and cis-heteronormative and, you know, it, it is, is hurtful. Um, we know that that business as usual cannot last another 200 years. It may, may not be, even be able to last another 100 or another, number, another 50. And as we work very hard to create what it is we feel called to create in harmony with the planet and each other, 
the immediate emergency intervention actions are necessary. And this is often what, what people who are currently opposed to change react to. Because for them, perhaps they feel that business as usual is working. But what a nonviolent direct action does, and what, what Jonathan and I do and others, is we train people on how to do these well so that they can come through them as whole as possible and we can reduce harm as much as possible while also getting the messages across as strongly as possible and making it as invitational as possible, but, but, but not, not lowering the stakes because the stakes are very high. <laughs> You know, it's the stakes of preserving complex life forms on the planet or not. <laughs> you know, every march against white supremacy, you know, in many ways is a climate justice march because it is systems of supremacy and oppression that brought us climate injustice and economic um, inequality. And so we challenge one, we challenge everything. So there's a necessity for blocking harm as well as building the alternative. So blocking and building go to, can go together. Now, some people are more natural builders. Some people are more natural blockers. What we work on in the movement, in addition to training people in nonviolent direct action, is how to appreciate people's natural giftings and trainings and to stay in contact with one another across the movement so that the builders and the blockers are not fighting. Mm-hmm. But to see in which ways that any, any nonviolent direct action that's very powerful um, has elements of of slowing down the harm to earth and its beings. And all building actions have a, have a sense of really embodying or being that change we want to see in the world, you know, and there's actually an additional element in addition to blocking harm and building the alternative. And that is being, being in alignment with your deepest values. Jonathan spoke to it already when he talked about the means and ends being one and not using methods that would counteract your end goal while, let's say, fighting for justice. Now, that, again, doesn't mean that people won't become uncomfortable or won't be offended. And so we try to help people beyond shame, be beyond shame, and that can help by resting in and working on your spiritual practices so that when challenge comes, you can be ready to meet it with an open heart rather than give in to the resistance that might be showing up in your body or the tension that might be there. Those shame reactions can come up like, Oh no, you know, but if you have a spiritual practice and you're in alignment with your deepest values, eventually you can ride that wave and you can come into another space that says, even though I'm shaking, even though I'm confused, even though I'm realizing that what I grew up with isn't the whole truth, I am here for whatever can really help us shift from business as usual towards a life-sustaining society. And so doing work in our churches or wherever people of faith are or wherever people are who are accessing spirituality, however they are accessing it, is to go in with a lot of respect and to see how we can deepen the practices that allow for us to block harm and build these alternatives and shake out kind of some of the systemic socialization that we have. So yes, uh, we are disruptors and we feel called to do that disruption. And we also very much appreciate people that are working in other ways towards what we want to see. So that's, that's a big part of, of what we do when we train. And I particularly work in a very unique, let's say, aspect of challenging business as usual. And that is in the business of usual of how our flush toilets function, our water flush toilets, that's fresh water flush. And mm. we need water, the, that fresh water um, for other aspects of life planetarily. And we're like running out of fresh water. And so if people become willing to you know, deal with their crap and have a chance to, are willing to look at it, Maybe even have to deal with a little bit of smell, but not even that much if you do it correctly. Mm. Um, through composting toilets or other ecological sanitation systems, we actually need to leapfrog both our municipal and national systems to change from using fresh water to something else. And this will also assist in resolving the worldwide sanitation crisis in which many people do not have access to dignified public sanitation. And it's not a matter of... Solving it is not a matter of just exporting 
kind of our freshwater flush model because that's not sustainable, but together looking at a system with how to like deal with our crap. So I, I talk about dealing with our crap literally and metaphorically. Mm-hmm. So um, looking right, at the, right. disrupting the freshwater flush system and helping to create ecological sanitation solutions, which take a while to do because more or less we have all been potty trained into one way of handling our refuse but we can go through advanced potty training and untrain some of that and to think about what's coming out of us not as something that is so-called waste but actually a discarded resource and to think about how to reintegrate the resources that are in our bodies into gardening and other ways of, of using our daily soil um, both urine and feces have nutritional properties that can feed the planet rather than being flushed into rivers and streams where they're wreaking mm-hmm. havoc. So that's a little mm-hmm. bit of a different turn than some of the other pieces, but it's very, very connected because how Christians understand, let's just say Christians for this time, their eschatology or the end times and how we understand the earth is earth just passing away. She's just coming and whisking us out of here. You know, if they have a Christian Zionist mentality, then it'll be very difficult to change something as basic and daily as your poop. Because if it doesn't matter in the end, then Hmm. why should it matter right now? But with our commitment that both means and ends are one, and that the kingdom of heaven is inbreaking now and, and earth is the heavenly womb that we are designed to roam. Like here's where it's at. Right. And God is with us here and you know, the body of Christ, Building the body of earth. If that's all connected, then there can be a growing willingness to do something as simple as how you use the bathroom differently. And as large as, bigger changes within how you live your life. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that you're right. That did take a turn I wasn't expecting, but I mean, I think it just it does speak to how like what we're invited into and how how basic it can be or or fundamental, you know, to the, the mm-hmm. daily routines um you know, to a bit more nuanced and um yeah so so that's just fascinating to me so you would i want to i want to further unpack what you guys mean when you're talking about nonviolent direct action i so my understanding is that you are applying the the concept of nonviolent direct action to like this particular issue of um waste and like do you see those are do those concepts are they linked or is that did i lose did i lose sight of what nonviolent direct action really is um and maybe yeah i mean answer however you want but but i would also be curious like throughout history are there tangible examples of like this is nonviolent direct action like you know so that we can kind of get some flesh on it so I can kind of conceptualize the concept a bit better. Yes. I will speak to that conceptually and Jonathan will give an example. Okay. So when, so nonviolent direct action is a part of a broader campaign for change and the actions that you take are part of a broader campaign, which is, has a vision, which ha- can have all sorts of dimensions and so in the examples that Jonathan will give about nonviolent direction action at Standing Rock, for example, in 2016, yes, you'll see like composting toilets showing up there, but that's not necessarily the main feature. How I connect them is that the desire for consistency of life and being able to make these large changes, if we're not able to or have access to mirroring them in the very basic daily routines of our lives. More people are familiar with this with regards to food justice, like how you're eating and where you're getting your food. All of that is part of a witness, a Christian witness is part of a peace witness. It's, it's connected. And so I, I just look at toileting. It's like kind of like the back end of food justice. 
So it can be looked at within like a food justice lens. It's a systemic, it's a systemic set of issues that need to be tackled. But what we're doing on the individual level is not the end all be all at all. <laughs> it, uh, nonviolent direct action is inviting us out of just individual actions and grouping those together towards creating awareness. Depends what the goal of the campaign is, but like creating awareness, creating legislative change or corporate change or Culture. philosophical cultural change. So that that those are some ways that they're connected. Just the scales are somewhat different. Let's talk Standing Rock and talk about some of the ways that all of these are connected. Yeah, so well, yeah, one of my favorite examples of nonviolent direct action that really embodies the blocking, the building, and the being all together uh, was Standing Rock. Sarah and I both had the opportunity to uh, participate in that um, that encampment in action in 2016, uh, where the uh, Indigenous communities were uh, working to stop the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline from going through uh, Indigenous lands uh, without their consent. And the basically, there was a very large encampment, which included, uh, from the encampment, they would do uh, protests. So protests are, are one of the main tactics of nonviolence. Um, some others are uh, boycotts, are strikes. Uh, these, these are some of the most common. There's literally hundreds uh, and people have started lists of, of these actions um, that, that they would put under the umbrella of, of nonviolent direct action. Um, so the, there would be protests that literally like blocked or stopped the, the construction of the pipeline. That, that where people were putting their bodies between the, the pipeline workers and the machines or, or things like this. Um, and that work was always done uh, in a prayerful manner. Literally, the, one of the rules of camp is this is a ceremonial camp. Everything we do here is a prayer. Uh, so that, that really encompassed the, the being aspect of of nonviolent direct action, the, the alignment with, with ancestors, with, with the greater than human, uh, that was underlying people's centeredness as they went into to those actions. But then thirdly, the encampment itself was, was an action. At one point, it was one of the largest cities. 13, 13. It was the 13th largest city in South Dakota in the middle of winter. And we were all there together without using money. Everyone had access to, to clinics. Everyone had access to food. Everyone had access to what they needed. We cared for, for each other. What? That's it. And sanitation. And sanitation, <laughs> right? We built composting toilets for that area um, so that we could sustain ourselves and the planet as well. So that's one of my best visions of the beloved community as well, right? As, as everyone was cared for extremely deeply. And we were also doing really hard work together, uh, fighting against injustice and building a little glimpse of the world we wanted to see. So that, that for me is, is like the primary example that I go to when I think about nonviolent direct action and the beloved community. That's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for kind of fleshing that out a bit more. Um, I'm curious about how, how, or, or if this resonates with the, the audiences that you guys work with or kind of the contexts that you find yourself in. Um, nonviolent direct action, the things, the, the issues that you're pursuing or systems that you aim to dismantle. I mean, like all of the work that you guys are doing, how would you say that's, that's hitting or capturing those within your community? Is there, um, do you face quite a bit of opposition or, um, you know, cause I'm assuming that everyone who showed up to Standing Rock was, 
maybe had a similar worldview or, or just, you know, saw the value in um, showing up as a community in this way. Um, but for the wider society, like, I don't know, I, I guess I'm just curious. Yeah. How, how is that for you guys? Um, and are those the people that you're trying to take along with you? I'd like to just start with one real quick kind of caveat. And that is that nonviolent direct action has pretty much always been a tool of minorities, right? If, if the majority of people already agree with the, the idea, sometimes you still need nonviolent direct action because there are other forces um, out there. But mostly nonviolent direct action is a way for minorities to, uh, uh, or people with a minority opinion, to almost have an outsourced societal power. We are willing to take risks. We are willing to be loud, to make noise for what we need to live. And therefore, uh, others must take notice. So I just want to start with that kind of understanding of nonviolent direct action as one of the main tools that oppressed communities have had um, to institute the needed change in society. Yeah, so you're really clear. It's not talking about just racial minorities, for example. That's right. And it's also not only just minority numbers, because that would be flipped in South Africa. But what mm-hmm. we're talking about is is a small group of people can effectively challenge oppression using nonviolent direct action. And it makes mm-hmm. sense for them to use nonviolence because if they try to use violence, they will be overwhelmed by the power of the state generally, and now the state and corporations and other actors that have guns. So we're talking about finding ways of acting that that do not use lethal violence and instead use the power of vulnerability. Mm. And that used to especially uh, connect with other humans to, to, to recognize that, wow, these people believe so strongly in something that they're willing to risk their lives. And they're also not posing a lethal threat to us. Might I be yeah. able to to them? Might I be able to find my own humanity in them? It's an appeal to humanity and it um, is... Um, a, it, it's one way of, of, of doing things, but it also doesn't require everyone to make change. We have here now a worldwide Christian movement and, and um, perhaps that perhaps that only happened because Constantine and the empire adopted Christianity. But what we mm-hmm. know is that Christianity was growing fast before the empire took it on as its own because of the powerful witness of egalitarian, welcoming, economically just communities that were finding alternative ways to live and be together. And that living and being together in building beloved community was essentially a ongoing, sophisticated, dedicated nonviolent direct action. They were risking their lives. And we know that from some of the martyrs, the stories of the martyrs in the early church, risking their lives to stand up to oppressive empire and say the way that you're saying we have to live and eat and love and worship is the only way. And we say there's there's more than one way. And they did it together and they lived it out. And we have all of these letters between these communities and between various guides of these communities to help figure out how to do this well. And so we, I guess, you know, never really thought about ourselves in kind of an apostolic role or an apostle role in which we encourage and support communities of change mm-hmm. and help them refine their tactics so that they can do it a little bit better and and have a little bit less um, difficulties doing it. Now, conflict will always be a part of life as humans. And the more technically nonviolent that the world gets, the more conflict that there will be because we are... because. Nonviolence means you don't eliminate someone, you don't kill them, or you don't eliminate them verbally if they don't agree with you. They're still around. And so you're still wrestling all of these complexities and changes and stuff. And so um, I think in in our future, we've done this a little bit already, but in our future will be more work around handling conflict and supporting communities in conflict and with a power analysis about what is happening and a recognition of the mandate for environmental sustainability, which requires um, diversity of, of peoples and particularly supports indigenous communities um, in their conflicts with settler colonial communities. 
Mm. Like we'll, we'll we'll probably work a little bit more at that because we had to find agreements and ways of living together that are gonna support life on the planet and that will require redistribution of resources, land, and will require the melting down of many, many weapons of war. So all of that to say, sure, it's a society-wide project, but never underestimate what a small group of committed people can do together because that is how we have seen change happen in the past. And when we do a nonviolent direct action, the, as we noted in, I think, video four of this series of on Stir Up Peace is a lot about spectrum of allies. And you're not trying to go for your active opponents and change their mind necessarily, but you're going for people who maybe are neutral or maybe who are even passive allies, but they haven't really done anything in support mm. of the cause. You're, you're, you're hoping to make them active allies. Or perhaps your passive opponents... You're just trying to help move them to a neutral position so that they won't mm. take active action against you. So that is the, the type of movement theory that we have. And I frankly think it feels a lot like early Christianity. I mean, people were asking Jesus, well, how do we know if this works? How do we know if this makes sense? And he was just like, come and see, come and see. And it's the same with nonviolent direct action. Come and see, see how you feel, feel the love that's within it. A, a protest march in which mm. the people are taking care of each other make sure everyone has water and snacks and asking about them their life story and and figuring out how how you get a ride to and from the doctor's office after the march i mean there's so much happening and jonathan described the encampment and even higher levels there's practice and in, in in caregiving that doesn't necessarily happen in business as usual society and to add one more thing, Sarah mentioned this video series that we did, and I, th I think that's a good example of how we've interacted with our community. So our, our religious community is, is the Mennonites, and uh, it's a pacifist tradition, which has tended to, uh, though not using violence, not get involved as much in, in um, societal uh, justice issues. So this video series that we made was one that specifically – uh, was geared towards Christians and, and Mennonites, particularly uh, showing the ways that nonviolent direct action can be and is a faithful witness. Mm. And really like diving into our tradition and showing the ways, as Sarah just outlined in, in what she just said, that nonviolent witness really connects with uh, ideas of the early church with the life and teachings of Jesus as well. Yeah. Just to go to the, wait see when I look at Palm Sunday and a week before mm -hmm. crucifixion, there's all sorts of non direct actions that happen in there. There's food sharing. There is a clearing out of, of the, of the temple as it relates to um, that place being taken over by, uh, you know, corrupt economic practices and taking space. There is a mock processional that yep. was mocking the, the ways that imperial. the imperial leaders walked into his or uh, rode into a city. Mm -hmm. Like there's just a, like a lot of cool stuff hmm. in the text that when read by oppressed communities through a liberation lens comes alive in ways that mm -hmm. has, has gotten deadened within kind of traditional celebrations that are kind of going through the, the motions and just waiting for Easter. But even even Holy Saturday itself is a day of waiting and, and not supposing that we know what's happening. That type of resting, that type of Sabbath, um, as it is in the Jewish tradition and and as it can influence Christianity if we let it, that, that resting, waiting, and openness, the action reflection cycle. I mean, so much of it is there. The Bible's a great manual for not direct action. <laughs> and for, a, I mean, one could call it God's campaign for the beloved community um, and trying to, yeah, create create not only a people, but um, a, a, like the more than human, all creation also growing, groaning for this renewing, um, looking towards mm. renewal and revolution, uh, revolution of value. That is... It is so interesting kind of reading through 
how reading through a particular lens um, or just from your own context and perspective really does inform kind of what you see come to life. And I think that 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 perspective has been muted throughout tradition. Um, And so, yeah, thank you for giving voice to that. Um, So as we're kind of wrapping up, I want to give you guys space to say um, whatever else you might want to share. And if, if this helps as kind of a final framing question, I, and you've touched on this throughout the, um, throughout our conversation, but just very in the broadest sense, um, but I'm sure you're going to have a practical response to this, where, where in your community, in the nation, the world, are you dreaming for this vision of beloved community to really ignite transformative change? Wonderful question. There is not a one size fits all solution for the next phase of our life collectively as humanity on this planet. It is very decentralized and very contextual. There will be connections across contexts. And so what I'm hoping for, what I love so much is to see when communities around the world are connecting struggles with one another and finding ways in which the shared struggle can ignite new alternatives, new ways of being and different ideas because the journey is long and can get arduous. And when you know there are others and there are people cheering for you from across the globe, it can be really powerful. I think for me, I would say, um, I would like to see this start within the church, especially the church in North America where, uh, speaking in the U.S. context, particularly the loudest Christian voices tend to be the ones that are pushing for white supremacy, that are pushing xenophobia, that are pushing anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish rhetoric. And it is incredibly disheartening to see what, as a Palestinian Christian, I feel like is an indigenous tradition focused on liberation, being used for oppression and for empire. And so if the church can hold the vision of beloved community that that great prophet and preacher Martin Luther King saw that coming from the life and teachings of Jesus, if the church can start getting there and call out the false prophets that are so loud today, that would be a start. Thank you guys so much for this. It's been a wonderful conversation and it could definitely go longer, but um, yeah, for the sake of time, we'll leave it here. Thank you guys so much. Wow. Yeah, that was, um, I feel like there are so many things that um, Jonathan and Sarah shared about that. um, I was learning so much from what they shared about their work that they're doing and um, ways that we can work towards the beloved community to um, include like ecological um, restoration. And, you know, um, that's something that's new to me personally, but, um, or not new. I mean, I just don't know a ton about it. I've obviously heard people talk about it a lot, but um, so yeah, anyways, just really cool to, to learn from them. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I a lot of newness in that conversation. Um, and I I could ask just so many follow-up questions of them. Um, and similarly, I was so fascinated to hear about Sarah's work around waste um, and have just been thinking about the 
because in some ways it sounds so, so radical, you know, what she's trying to do. But at the same time, it's like, it's, it's minor, like it's daily, but it's also, so it's like, it's, it's consistent, um, in terms of if we're talking about, um, making a consistent change. Um, but then like what it requires. Yeah. So I don't know. I've just been, I've been thinking about like how, how could people be sold on, um, on something like that? So not, you know, just talking about her work, but, but on something like that, like, does it take some sort of spiritual conviction? Like, does it take seeing a connection between justice and caring for the earth and faith and, or, um, yeah, I guess, I guess I've just been questioning, like, what, what does it require? I think, you know, I think especially in our current context, I think it can be easy to like become disconnected from the, like, like you're saying the everyday, like impacts of, um, the ways that we aren't stewarding the earth and, and the environment um, and how like, because these issues become so politicized that we forget that like it, yeah, like it probably is something that we would care about a lot or be really concerned about and, and feel connected to if we could focus on like, yeah, the real impact of these things and how it even connects to us personally, um, like on a personal level. So I think, yeah, I think being willing to like listen and, um, and understand stories, um, even around, even just hearing, you know, Sarah's work and, um, and learning more about that and, and understanding the impact of that, um, I think could help us to move from just focusing on like the political sort of, um, like conflict around it and just looking at like, well, what do I think actually as, as a follower of Jesus, like as someone who believes that God has given right. us the earth, the steward, like, what does that look like for me on a personal level? And then like at the community level too. Yeah. Very, very yeah. Super challenging. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It is challenging. Cause I think we, yeah, it's also hard sometimes because our daily lives are so, um, like caught up in the systems that exist sometimes that we just don't even think about these things. We just forget about um, the impact of how we're living each and every day and what that, how that, the impact that has on, on the environment and um, ecology. So it's almost like, how do we become more present to our daily lives, which honestly can start with like spiritual, a spiritual practice, right. Or like, sitting before God and just asking him, like, how can I be a better steward of, of what you've given me personally? And then like Mm. us as a collective, maybe, I don't know. Those are just thoughts I have. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. I like what I'm getting from that and just thinking back on this entire series of beloved community, I feel like something that I've been learning is that um, in order to build sometimes like it does take a level of questioning and you know tearing down um things that have not been helpful and things that have actually oppressed and so it does seem like in order to move forward um in peace and justice in communities it does it you need to look back and this isn't like some groundbreaking thought but i think that is so much about what the beloved, who we are as the beloved community is being able to like challenge what's been established and recognize that nothing's permanent. And that, um, you know, yeah, just because it's, it's been, this is, this is how things have been set up. Like thinking about, you know, the founding of our country and, um, the so-called like discovery of, you know, the new world, like, like how, like, that is something that that's a, that's a reality that that's the founding of our nation. Like that's a reality we've been living with just the grave injustice against native Americans, indigenous peoples in this land. So like, just because that's happened, it doesn't mean that we can just plow ahead without reconciling anyway. Yeah. I think beloved community requires that we reconcile our past in order to move forward. And, um, yeah, 
Yeah. So somehow what you were saying sparked that thought. That's so well put. I love how you just articulated that. And I think it speaks so well to, I think also the sort of like garden analogy that I think Sarah was using of like uprooting things that aren't, that are harmful, that are oppressive. Um, Yeah. And yeah, but it's not in like a destructive way. I think it's, it is in a healing restorative way. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you're trying to grow a garden, right. But then you, maybe you have weeds that are coming up and like taking over your plant, your flowers or like um, choking out plants or something, then usually you right. would like uproot the weeds, right. And remove those. But I think it's important to keep in mind like what Jonathan was talking about where it's like we still have to love our enemies and like what does that look like and so I love how they sort of help people to overcome like shame when examining their own people's own part Mm -hmm. like for like you were just talking about for us as a country like our own part and what um has been violence against um people of color against indigenous people against um Yeah. yeah like African-Americans and like just thinking about that from the perspective of yeah like you're saying like acknowledging those wrongs and harms is a part of that healing process and I think even as we think of you know Jesus or God in the Bible as being the the gardener too of like um, you know those sort of analogies of like pruning so that fruit may grow or like yeah, like trimming away those things that don't contribute to shalom or to beloved community, like, um, is really important to reflect on as well. Yes, absolutely. And that part of that can be, you know, our own, not, not even structures and systems and these huge things that, you know, it feels like one individual can't like reconcile an entire system that's part of it, but that's part of creating a beloved community, certainly. But I think part of it's also like, um, problematic theology and ideology, um, which then connects for me to what Jonathan was talking about, um, with Christian Zionism. And, um, I mean, that's, yeah, I think it's so hard to identify, the water that you're swimming in, so to speak, um, until you see another perspective. And I didn't even realize, like I was, I was definitely kind of raised in, um, indoctrinated sounds so negative, but, um, but I, I was taught, um, kind of within this tradition and it took, um, travel and, you know, study at seminary for me to kind of step back and, and realize, uh, like, what Christian Zionism is at its core. Um, and yeah, so I know you've got some thoughts on that as well. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think it's really important, a really important conversation. Um, because like you're saying, I think oftentimes we come up in certain ways of thinking and certain theologies and ideologies that, um, can be working against the beloved community, but Um, We don't even realize it. And so I think that's a really important point. And, um, you know, I think a lot of like we've interviewed, you know, like Salim Munayer on this podcast, um, who's a Palestinian Christian, and he articulates this the best. Um, So if you haven't yet, you should definitely go back and listen to our episode with Salim. But, um, for example, like a lot of American, um, I think, I don't know if this is accurate, but particularly like white American Christians, um, which is a category that I fall into, but we don't understand that the dynamics of what it's like on the ground in, in the Holy land. And even understanding that there are Christians who are Palestinian who are suffering at the hands of the occupation and that they are crying out for for help from the American church, from the international church, and actually feel quite abandoned by um, others in the family of believers who aren't coming to coming to say like, hey, yeah. this is what's happening here is harming our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does that mean in the context of, of Christian Zionism? So um, 
I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I think, um, yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, it's, it's the question of like, in this, uh, this concept of the new covenant with Jesus, like who is included in that community? Um, is it just this one group of people and is it for a physical space of land or is it about everyone that is that that's made available to and that is um is not tied to a physical piece of land but is actually this idea of like a spiritual um kingdom of yeah including right all people so i think that's important um too yeah Wow. So well said. And you have the privilege of going soon. Yes. Yes. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm going to be co-leading a telos trip with my church in DC. Actually, yeah, two churches in DC. Um, So really excited for that. And I think it'll be, for those who don't know, um, the telos group, we've totally talked about them on the podcast a lot and they are partners of ours um in the christian peacebuilding network and um but they're a fellow peacebuilding organization and they focus on um sort of multi-narrative peacemaking and understanding on the ground in israel palestine as well as um american south and mexican border and south africa and ireland and I think Puerto Rico now, so they, they do um, immersive trips all around the world in areas of, of entrenched um, division and conflict. And um, yeah, so they are kind of trying to help people to see and learn firsthand from people who are living in those yeah. places and, and their experiences. So that's going to be amazing. Really looking forward to so that. So key. Yeah, so key, that immersion and yeah, being able to have face-to-face communication and, and storytelling. And um, yeah, it's going to be incredible. Yeah. I think just to close, you know, um, again, at the beginning of this episode, we read a peace quote from uh, just a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that we've named a peace quote. And again, I can repeat it. It's resistance and nonviolence are not in themselves good. There's another element that must be present in our struggle that then makes our resistance to nonviolence truly meaningful. That element is reconciliation. Our ultimate end must be the creation of the beloved community. Um, so just taking everything that we've heard and, and we've discussed today, thinking about um, how reconciliation is is like at the heart of the beloved community and, and it's the crux. And so whether it's Jonathan's work with Palestinian liberation and kind of dismantling Christian Zionism um, or just exposing another, another way or, or Sarah's work with ecological regeneration. I think I appreciate that it's, it's not um, kind of, kind of similar to what you said, their nonviolent struggle is not um, to dismantle and destroy for destruction's sake, but it's actually to reconcile and to build something better um, and ultimately to create the beloved community. And I don't know if they would articulate it that way, but I think that's that's within this framework and within this series, like that's kind of how we're seeing it. Um, mm-hmm. And also we didn't really talk about their work with um, Christian peacemaker teams, but that's like, you know, that's exactly what they do is um, teaching nonviolence and nonviolent direct action. I think that's that's a really good way to sort of, yeah, encapsulate that conversation and understand that, yeah, some kind of um, resistance or, what you know, um, nonviolent action that's trying to change an oppressive um, structure or situation, yeah, is not just to end that oppression it's actually to bring holistic like healing and restoration and yeah i think as we pursue beloved community that's how we um approach it so yeah so well said if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe rate and review on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts and for more info about peace catalyst and to help support our peace building work 
please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, guys. Bye.